0: Hello friends, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. It's me, your host Dave. I appreciate you spending a little time with me this week. I have a treat for you, an inside look at something I have been so fortunate to get to do over the last couple of months. Anytime there were a group of people that went in on a group order of get out of your own way, I have jumped into and been part of a book club on Zoom. And some friends of this community, longtime supporters of our community, Shannon Hale and Mindy Henderson, gathered a group of extraordinary women for what ended up being such a fun hour of Q&A that I thought I would record it and bring it to y'all so that you could uh, be part of something that for me was super special to be able to connect with people who've had an experience with the book and uh, just have a conversation with you members of our community. So... Enjoy this, it's a Q&A, it's a book club, it's community, it's real life, and I think it's some fun. Enjoy. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together.
1: Yay, hello everybody. I'm so excited to see you guys. Welcome to the Thrive and Shine group. Today, we have an amazing gentleman in the room. We all know and love him, and we're so excited to have him here to share his insights and infinite wisdom. Welcome New York Times bestselling author, former Disney superhero, Dave Hollis. Hello, Dave. Hi, guys.
0: Well, I appreciate y'all wanting me to come on down. Here we go. It's lunchtime on a Tuesday. Let's have some fun. Well,
2: we are so excited that you he- that you are here. And I'm going to hand the mic over. Do we have Erin Phillips on the phone? Aaron submitted a question for you. We do. I'm first up. Oh my goodness. Hi, Erin Phillips. Hi, Jay Wallace. How are you? I'm
0: doing well. Thank you very much. Where are you at, Aaron Phillips?
2: I am in Greenville, South Carolina. South
0: Carolina's in the house, hello.
2: That's right, that's right. Just moved up from Charleston, so uh, in my empty house right now, actually. Awesome, I heard an
0: echo, that's perfect, good work.
2: Yeah, I know, we've got work going on downstairs, so hopefully it's not too loud, I've got my ear in. Here's my question. How do you find passion for your business when you've lost it? So I've got employees, clients, depending on me, I'm making a decent profit after four years, but I'm feeling a little lackluster these days and the motivation and like passion department. And I find my entrepreneur brain going to new ventures when I really need to be staying the course Ooh, this <laughs> at a, this point. <laughs>
0: that's a great question. I love this question. Great question. All right, so uh, what comes to mind, uh, two things. I. Uh, recently had this conversation with a guy named Stephen Coulter. It was a part of a Rise Together podcast. If you have not listened to it, I encourage you to. But uh, we were talking about the power of curiosity and how if you can pull on the threads of the places where you have genuine, legitimate curiosity, that it is a thing that just affords you what he called focus for free, right? Like you just tend to pay more attention to the things that you legitimately have personal curiosity for. And so when you're inside of your business, if you have become a little bit uh, just like in a routine that has maybe deviated somewhat from the places where you have personal curiosity, is there a way for you to try a bunch of different things inside of your own business to see if there's anything that plays to the way that you get lit up in the curiosity department, because uh, in this progression that he talks about, it's like curiosity ends up giving way to passion. And passion, which is gonna be the second thing I'm gonna talk about, when it can be directed toward impact, creates purpose. The idea of like, if you can find a way to go from curiosity to having something that becomes more like passion, that passion, because of it now, helping directly impact other people becomes purpose. Now you're going to be feeling something. So the first thing I would say is just like is there a way for you to maybe just like dabble in different parts of the business that you haven't previously maybe spent as much time in to see what what things just like kind of rise to the top. And then the second thing is that idea of impact because when you're when you're able to Actually, have the work that you're doing directly impact someone else. I think you end up having this opportunity for feeling a depth of fulfillment because of it having become purpose. I'm uh, <laughs> not that this is necessarily directly, specifically uh, related to what you do inside of your company, but I've been on this mission in this like most recent book that I'm turning. I turned it in yesterday. Thank you very much. And the thesis, the like overall kind of through line is this big, broad, huge question, how might I honor the intention of my creator, right? Like I believe that every single one of you was placed on this planet with a very, very specific intentional purpose, that there was deliberate design in how you would have every single individual experience that you have, the way that your brain processes thoughts, the way that you feel feelings, your strengths, even your weaknesses, I think all of them were very intentionally and deliberately created. And so the question that I ask is, all right, well, how can I honor the intention of my creator who very deliberately made me a very specific way And the primary way that I can honor the intention of the creation is through impact. And so when you find yourself struggling a little bit to feel connected to, you know, fulfillment or excitement or whatever, I would, I think, ask, is there a way against the backdrop of that bigger question, is there a way for you to ask if your gifts are specifically being exploited to their fullest in a way that would have impact on other people that might honor the intention of why you were placed on this planet, right? Like Believe however you believe, it could be the way that I believe or from something else, but there is some kind of higher power that has some very specific intentional design on why you were put on this place. And the business that you're running is very much a part of why you're here. But your ability to impact other people and pulling on the threads of where you have curiosity for, those are the two places I'd go.
2: So good. Thank you. You're welcome. The more we've we've grown, the more employees I have between me and all the women, but business owners, I help. And so that's such a great point on impacts because I'm stepping farther away from hearing their feedback every day and remembering the impact we're making on their businesses and lives.
0: Oh, that's that's good. good. By the way, Erin, I mean, like, I've taken on a handful of individual one-on-one coaching clients, not paid, why, Dave, you could charge money for this. And I've done it truly because the way that it helps me stay connected to this maximization of my gifts and the utilization of my why I'm here keeps me up and going and feeling great. And so it might even just be as simple as going to grab a quick cup of coffee every once in a while with somebody, whether it's virtual or in real life, with someone who you're helping so that you can be reminded of what the heck this is all for. When you feel that, that's like the that's the gas in the engine, you
3: know.
2: So oh, good, you're right. Thank you. Of course. Okay, we are off to a good
4: start. Do we have Cody Elizabeth?
3: Hello. Thank you. All right. My question is, uh, when going through your first editing and brainstorming process of creating your book, uh, what's been the most helpful advice or comments you received from your editors and coaches? And then also, uh, what advice would you give someone going through their first ever round of edits?
0: Good questions. Uh, The editing process, I will tell you this, uh, I'm just now finishing the editing process in this second book. And the editing process in the first book relative to the second book has been wildly different in that (laughs) it was an extraordinarily triggering thing to feel like, man, I'm putting myself out in this way that is super vulnerable and transparent and now someone is going to come and tell me that these words are not good. And it was just like, oh, so soul crushing because I already felt like man, I'm, I'm doing something that I'm uncomfortable with, I feel again like this is something that is about heeding a call to try and be light, and yet, the job of the editor is to actually do the work of soul-crushing in some capacity to help mm-hmm. you make the book better. So my, my initial reaction was, and what's, here's what's super, super interesting, I ended up writing the chapter, I need a drink, in the editing window, because my decision to stop drinking came when my edits arrived, because it was so hard for me to handle the criticism of my work. And uh, against certainly, too, the backdrop of You know, worrying about how I might be compared to Rachel and her work and whether I was deserving of the kind of opportunity that I was getting and if people would even be open to receiving the things that I was going to put down on paper. So interestingly, that the edit process revealed that, oh man, there's still some work that needs to be done in terms of having good coping mechanisms. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And my year of not drinking and what has now become not drinking generally is something that was really born out of these edits. The second time around, I can tell you that the difference in the book that I turned in the first time and the product that we are actually having a conversation about was so wildly better. It was so different because the work of the editor is to actually help you see things that you are not in a place to see from an objectivity standpoint. bias in how you story told or the things that you thought would work, but they frankly didn't. And so knowing that, it was just such a gift because now I came into this second book and my appetite for receiving the feedback was wildly different because I just knew, oh, this is going to be for the benefit of a book that someone actually wants to read. Praise be, send me those notes. Now, is it still jarring when I opened up the manuscript for the first time? I've got like 70,000 words on a piece of paper and there is red on every single page? Yeah, of (laughs) course, because I'd like to believe that I'm just, you know, like, I'd like to believe I'm a good writer and that the first pass from an editor should be, congratulations, here's your award. Thank you very much for showing up. My, you know, my work here is done. And yet there's still, obviously, great notes that can come. What I do know, that I didn't know from last time is I accepted almost every single note that was given on the manuscript last time. And I absolutely have not had that be the case this time because there are things that I just trust that, hey, this is important for me to say. It is a thing that I want to do and I am gonna be okay declining your recommendation because I wanna trust my own voice. There was a, an Instagram, like an IGTV, that Glennon Doyle did right around the turn of the year, and she was talking about this word "stet," S-T-E-T, which is like um, "thank you, but no." <laughs> it's like right, <laughs> and and her having like this conversation, it was in, interestingly like some permission for me to also be okay trusting my own inner voice, trusting my own intuition of what I think the reader ends up needing in this. And so um, my best advice would be that you have to, number one, prepare yourself for it being triggering because you are human. As humans, when you get notes, when you get feedback, it's hard to not take it personally or have it question whether you have the qualifications to be doing the thing. And so the... The the reality ends up being you're probably gonna get some feedback that you don't necessarily like. And at the same time, it's there to make the book better. And also, you gotta trust your gut. And if there are things that you get as a part of feedback and you're like, no, nope, I'm gonna pass on that, thank you very much, then that's I think okay too, because you know the stories you want to tell and the things you want to say, and just because someone professionally believes that they have. An insight into what would read the best, you know the things that you want to say. So it's going to make the book better, right? It's going to make the book better and trust your gut.
3: Thank you so much. I'm actually an editor and a book coach and everything. So uh, I like to be able to flip that and and just let them know, like, I'm here for you. <laughs> so thank you so much for your answers. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Awesome. Raina Rose. Raina also had a question about your book. Howdy. Uh, my name is Raina Rose Axelbeard. Dave is so freaking exciting uh, to meet you. You're really like a mentor, although uh, this is the first time uh, we're meeting. Actually, no, the first time we were meeting, I walked up to you at Rise. And I was like, oh, my God, Dave. And you like pointed and I turned around and there was this huge line. I was like, oh, okay, bye, Dave. So hi, Dave. Hi. Show, uh, new season. Uh, my question for you is your recent book was inspired by 20 lies that you really took on as these, you know, like self-limiting beliefs. Well, my question for you is what truths have you held throughout your life that have given you an advantage in your professional uh, and personal situation.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Let's see, when you go through big identity shift, when you choose to leave the harbor, when you decide to walk towards your fear into what inevitably will bring you to this more evolved, bigger version of yourself, or when change is chosen for you, you have to wrestle with, right? Like what are the things that you will connect to and stay as constants inside of your life that um, no matter what, no matter like what you previously were uh, will always just be part of who you are. And I can say like my primary identity prior to our divorce was husband, right? And so the identity shift that came for me and now not being that thing was super jarring. And it left me a little bit in a, in a struggle, in a pinch to really identify, well, who am I if I'm not who I was? And I think a lot of us can identify with feeling those feelings when the world changes, when life changes, when pandemic happens, when all, all, sorts of, like, all sorts of things happen. And so when you have the ability then to start asking that question, you get to really get to the core of, well, who am I? And so for me, I like, I know the first thing I wrote, I'm a child of God, right? Like I believe that my faith, it starts and ends so many questions of who I really am. I'm the parent to these four kids. I believe myself to be a light bearer. Hey, I've been given these gifts. The responsibility of these gifts is to give these gifts to the people who are in need of the light that I might be able to create. I'm an ally, an advocate to people who may not be the beneficiaries of the kind of privilege that I get to experience as a white, able-bodied. You know, like uh, uh, there's a whole host of things that I, as a man in this world, already get to benefit from as a white male, as a as a straight white male, as an American straight white male. And so, how can I maybe use my voice, platform the Uh, invitation or access that I get to certain tables to advocate on behalf of other people. So I, you know, like, I I, I went back to those capital T truths. Those are truths that are going to exist, like, no matter what. And what's interesting is, I I don't know that we spend enough time reminding ourselves of who we are, irrespective of the conditions. And And in a world where I'm, more than anything, trying to encourage people to embrace how growth can exist when you leave the things that you are comfortable with and what you know, the thing that you have to appreciate is that you get no say over the conditions of that sea that you end up moving toward. And so knowing that, hey, these are the anchors, the capital T truths, as I call them, that will be constants irrespective of whether the wind's blowing me toward the shore I'm heading toward or there's no wind at all and I find myself just waiting on wind,
5: got your Happy Price, price line.:
0: the, the next book actually starts with kind of a deeper conversation around values. like what do you stand for? And so I think if you are able to spend a little bit of time asking the question of what you stand for, it helps provide a little bit of evidence for how you have to act regularly. To create integrity between what you stand for and how people think about you. And the capital T truths in my life a lot of times end up also being this instructive set of guardrails of sorts, of you know, here's here's how I act, but also here's how I don't act. So that um, for anyone that I'm in community and in relationship with, the more that they're also aware of what I believe to be my values and what I stand for. If they see me deviate from what I've represented is important to me or who I'd hope to show up as, they've now been given some permission to respectfully have some radically candid conversations with me about having beard off course. But they have to first understand what your capital T truths are. And so that's, I think, a part of what any of us, all of us ought to be thinking about. Like, What do you stand for no matter what? I know i got my faith. I know i got my kids. I know I have this opportunity with advocacy and being an ally for others. I know that I want to be a light bearer. Positivity is a super important thing. Growing growth, right? I want to make sure that I am perpetually on this journey to becoming that doesn't necessarily have a destination so much as the act of continually trying to become is in and of itself the thing that will help me feel like I'm always pushing away from, be it comfort, be it laziness, be it what you know, whatever it ends up being, right? But a lot of times too, I've been spending a lot of time under, like, trying to understand what is it about the appeal of staying inside of spaces that are familiar to us, even if those spaces are filled with suffering, right? Like, I think there's a a human condition, unfortunately, that tends to have us choosing to stay inside of suffering that we know because of its familiarity. And so even if that relationship, even if those habits, even if the coping mechanisms, even if the job, even if all of the things, don't unlock or bring about the best version of ourselves that actually connect to those ap- capital T truths that we believe in, because of our worry or fear of embracing the unknown and what might happen, we convince ourselves that, hey, I'd rather be here where it feels a little more predictable and safe, even though it might be killing me, even though it might be coming at the expense of my fulfillment, at least I know what I'm getting. And man, that is no way to live because it comes at the expense of those things that happen to end up also being your capital T truths. You're deciding to sacrifice those things for familiarity instead of pushing yourself into something unfamiliar for the benefit of, again, creating that integrity for the things that you actually stand for. I hope that makes sense. I kind of went in a circle there, Rena.
3: No, it, it definitely makes sense for me. Cliff Notes version, what I got out of that is. When I left the nonprofit world two years ago, similar to how you defined yourself as husband, I was speaker and I was mentor, and when I wasn't getting those gigs, I really lost myself, and it was really diving into you and Rachel and these other speakers that I realized my values and who I authentically am is I'm a connector, I'm kind, I'm funny, I'm inspirational, and whether I'm on stage or selling beer at the liquor store or Selling my children's book, The Girl Who Said Hello to Everyone. That's how I'm authentically going to show up in all of those places. So I love everything that you said, and hopefully we'll share a stage one day. And I can't wait to read book number two. Let's go.
0: All right, Raina, I love that.
2: Fantastic. Let's go to Nina Miles. Nina, I
1: think you had a question about self publishing. Yeah. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good, Nina. How are
0: you doing? Where are you from, Nina? I'm-
1: I'm from um, Pennsylvania. Right on. Congratulations on your two books. Super exciting. So my question was, um, I just finished writing and publishing my first book. And so I wanted to know kind of how do you tell people about it when you're super excited, but then at the same time not come off as like like a car's meant, you know, like too salesy, you know, or like just, oh, buy my book, buy my book, you know.
0: That's a great question. So the the thing Thank I would what, what, tell me about the book real quick, like what's the what's the quick like elevator pitch version of your book?
6: So I'm a certified nursing
1: assistant, and so I wrote a book. It's called Intentional Caregiving, and then um, ten principles on how to be an exceptional DNA.
0: Oh, so good. All right. So this is going to be an easy answer because you are focused on creating a solution for an existing need, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. so uh, in a way similar to, I don't know if you've heard of a guy named Gary Vee, but he has this book called Jab, 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 Right Hook, right?
5: Yes. <laughs> you right?
0: So like you, you need to focus on how can you throw some jabs of mm-hmm. value that might okay. afford people to see you as being considerate first and foremost of the delivery of that value, right? Like you've written something that obviously identified a need that exists inside of the market, inside of the industry that you are living inside of every single day. And your intention, certainly, yes, you wanna sell some books, but you also wanna equip nurses to be better nurses. And so finding ways to position your book as the solution by giving them little snippets, little tidbits, That Mm -hmm. reflect, hey, here's the, you know, here's a little taste of the value that you will uh, inevitably end up enjoying were you to buy this book. But because I love you all so much and I care so much about the nursing business and I want you to succeed and thrive, let me give you one of these tips. I was just having a conversation with uh, a friend of mine who just had a book come out. And I was telling her about how one of the things that had been successful for the launch of my book and certainly for the launches of Rachel's was finding a way to sample parts of the book for people that may be on the fence for thinking it's for them, right? Mm -hmm. So we happen to have podcasts and being able to take chapters of my book, make it available for free for someone to just receive value happens to also have the highest correlation of any week that the book sold well. And so finding a way to take parts of the book and serve those parts of the book to the audience that it's intended for, just so that they can get a sense of, oh man, I like her writing style. Oh wow, there is some great value inside of this. Oh, she has a heart for actually trying to serve and satisfy a need that I personally am working through and going through. That would be the first place I would start. Second is the more that you can story tell around your why. Why did you write this book, right? Like if you wrote this book, because as a person who lives inside this nursing space, identify that there was an opportunity for people to be better educated about how to care for patients, because you didn't unfortunately get the kind of training that you would have hoped. I'm, not, I'm making your story up, right? Uh, right, right? If it's you, true. Right? Okay, so if you end up having a story though, that other people can see themselves inside of, you've now created what I refer to as an empathy bridge, right? Like, oh, I see that Nina is speaking my language. She is talking about the thing that I also am experiencing. And if she's representing this at a high level, I bet there's probably some stuff inside of her book that I'm totally gonna relate to that would actually affect how I show up inside of this caregiving space. And so I would, I would find ways to, whether it's doing a quick Facebook or Instagram Live, pitching yourself for different podcasts, like wh- whatever it ends up being, just go and start telling your story. And inside of the group of people who live inside of nursing, I, I'm, I'm certain of it, are gonna collectively have the same kind of experiences that you have personally had and that the book tries to specifically address. And the more that you can share just a little taste, it's going to be that trail of breadcrumbs that leads someone to say, oh, you know what? I actually do need this book because, man, I've had a lot of experiences similar to Nina's. And she's trying to lead with service. And, man, I I actually have a need that she can help satisfy in having created this thing.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dave. So good.
0: Man, I'm rooting for you, Nina. I'm, I'm hopeful that this is going to be a big, huge success. But more than anything, I hope it just has a massive impact on every person who reads it.
1: Thank you so
6: much. That's my hope, too. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Kristen Cook. Yes, I am here, Mindy. Hello.
0: Hi, Kristen. Where are you from, Kristen? Hi,
6: Dave Hollis. How are you? I'm
0: doing well, Kristen Cook. Where are you coming in from?
6: Right now I'm in Racine, Wisconsin. I'm at work. I'm a pediatrician, um, but I live in Gurney, Illinois. And my question for you relates to the chapter in your book, A Drink Will Make This Better?, Were you right? A life of growth is is a life of exhilarating discomfort, which is that sentence is both beautiful and terrifying at the same time. But the specific question for you, I am in the situation now where during the pandemic, I have developed a a misuse of alcohol, okay? So I'm in the category and you write about it. I've had a hard day, I deserve a drink. Well, the drink time has now interfered with the time that I used to use for my passion, which is writing. So I also have published my first book and I am working on others, but I want to know from your standpoint, are there any specific strategies that you use to avoid alcohol when you have those? I have a hard day. I deserve a drink moments. Yeah. How do you fit with that discomfort?
0: Well, number one, I mean, Kristen, you are in like self-awarenessville and a willingness to bring a thing that for so many people ends up being shrouded in shame into the light. Congratulations, number one, for just your willingness to have a conversation about it, because this was the first and hardest part of the entire thing. Just like acknowledging like, oh man, it's tipped into this place where it's not serving me. I don't like the way that it ends up distracting me or keeping me from actually achieving the things that I want to achieve or being the person I want to try and be. So uh, kudos to you just for even like acknowledging, hey, I want to try and figure this out. I think the biggest thing for me was this appreciation that the drink, the negative coping mechanism, was not a local anesthetic. I had convinced myself that, oh, if I've had long days and I want to take the rough edges off the long day, that I can have a drink and it's going to specifically address the rough edges and that's it. And that's just not real because you can't mute the discomforts or the triggered feelings or the anxiety or the insecurity without also muting the joy or the creativity that might come in writing the book or like on and on and on, right? And so the appreciation that, oh, this is a double-edged sword that, yep, you can reduce for a moment some of the things that you might be feeling in overwhelm, but the, at the same time, it's also taking away all of the good that might come in processing the overwhelm. That's when you realize, okay, this is not a long-term strategy. We gotta come up with a new plan. So the, in the book, I mentioned it, and bizarrely enough, because I just love this so much, I ended up putting it in the next book as well, but really identifying when you feel triggered ends up being the most important next thing that you need to try and do to actually change the habit loop. I think everyone appreciates that there is a habit loop, there's a trigger, you end up having a routine that produces a reward. And the hope is that if you can identify when triggering ends up happening, that you can move your habit from an unconscious response into a conscious, deliberately different routine that still allows you to produce the reward that you're looking for. And so, you know, like if it's time of day and it sounds like it may in fact be time of day based, okay, then you just have to be on your game, preemptively thinking about how, when you get to that time of day, when you feel the trigger, well, it's that time of night, how you can still get the reward that you're looking for by swapping the routine. So for me, I know when I get triggered, I have to think about body movement primarily so that I don't reach for a drink. And it's like my running has just become such an important, huge part of my life. But even beyond running, I'm training in real time for an Ironman. I'm doing whether it's bike or swim or, or, you know, getting into the old garage gym. I'm doing something physical when I start to feel the pangs of overwhelm, when I start to have the anxiety or the insecurity, whatever it might end up being. So understanding when you get triggered, preemptively coming up with what routine you will swap drinking for that will still produce the reward because you still need the reward. And if your reward is to feel more calm, to feel less overwhelmed, to feel less anxiety. Great. What are the other things that you could do at that time when you're traditionally triggered that would afford you that reward? Because you need the reward. When you get the trigger, you have to get to that reward. And in the absence of creating a routine that produces it, you'll grab a drink. So what other things could you do that might afford you the thing that you are looking for in grabbing a drink? So for you, it might be taking a walk. It might be doing a meditation. It might be throwing on some music and dancing. It could be picking up the phone and calling a friend. I, like, I don't know what it is for you that actually takes overwhelm And brings it to a more neutral place but those are the things that you have to spend a little bit of time doing investigative work around because again you know you're going to get triggered you cannot not be triggered it's just going to happen that time of day is going to happen every single day that person that preceding emotion that location right all those things they are just going to happen so knowing that they're going to happen you have to ask okay how can i still deliver the reward that i'm looking for by swapping out the routine that's previously been less healthy for one that is more healthy the other thing i would throw out and this is man i in the midst of the who am i now that i'm not who i previously was i went on this hunt for self (laughs) i had to really try and understand like who i am at a deep level and i've been spending a ton of time inside of Therapy with a guy named David, who I just love. He's like a part of my life in an amazing way. I am financing a boat for this human being, best money I've ever spent. And the work that we're doing is trying to understand that I as self am different from the emotions or thoughts that I am experiencing. And so my wanting to have a drink before was about feeling like I was anxious and now, because of the work that I've been doing, I do not believe myself to be anxious when I feel anxiety. I, as self, am the observer of that anxiety. And part of how I've had to like create peace and comfort in my emotions and my thoughts is by sitting down and inviting a conversation, as crazy as this may sound, with the feeling that has presented itself to understand what role it believes itself to be playing. right? So when I get anxious, and I get anxious all the time, I'm awesome, get anxious, human. When I get anxious, I get to sit and have a conversation with my anxiety in a way that's, again, as self, the observer of the emotion. And it starts again with this appreciation that these parts of us believe themselves to be doing work, that will protect us, that will keep us safe, that will help us. So even if it's a negative emotion, that emotion doesn't know it's negative, that emotion just knows that it is in this world to help you in some way. And the role that you have to play as the observer of the emotion is asking it, what role do you believe yourself to be playing? Now, for me, my anxiety has tended to present itself when there is a part of my life that does not yet have clarity, doesn't have a plan. And in the ambiguity that exists for that part of my life, anxiety has shown up to direct my focus to that part of my life. It believes it to be doing itself's job. It thinks it's there for this sole purpose. I'm gonna point this out. And maybe, Dave, as self, when you become cognizant of and aware of this thing, maybe then you will do something about it. You'll make a plan. And when you have, I will have satisfied the role that I was meant to play here, and I, as this feeling of anxiety, will leave. And you will be back in a place of peace. So if there's a way, separate from identifying when you get triggered, how do you change the routine so you still get the reward? If there's also a way for you to spend a little time understanding what, what emotion are you trying to solve for with a drink? And is there a possibility of you, rather than solving it with alcohol, inviting it to reveal what role it believes itself to be playing? I know it sounds a little bit wild, but it's, it's, it, it's such an amazing thing that be it anger or sadness or anxiety or fear or whatever, when I've had this conversation, like naming this emotion and treating it as though it has now taken residence at a table inside of my brain, having that conversation has afforded me so many breakthroughs with these feelings in a way that doesn't demonize them for existing. It just respects that, oh, you think you're here to you know, fulfill some kind of role that you are playing to keep me safe, to protect me, to help me. What is that role? Please direct me to it now that you have. I'm gonna go make a plan, take some action, do something that is healthy that also satisfies why you think you're here.
6: That's fascinating. Thank you so much for <laughs> that. Um, I also have a therapist and she's amazing and her name is Heather. And just yesterday I had a session with her where she Totally, me, she said, Kristen, you don't have a problem feeling the emotions. You have a problem verbalizing them and naming them. And so really doing this practice of when I get triggered, trying to identify the emotion, I think that it's going to be so helpful.
0: Right on. See. Good luck, Kristen. You're awesome. I can already tell you're awesome. You're going
4: to be Thank great you. at this.
1: Next up, let's uh, have Joanne Sotella come on and answer her question.
4: Thank you so much. Thank you, Dave, for being in here with so many extraordinary women. and I love what you're doing with Brendan Bouchard as well, so thank you.
0: Oh, right on. Uh, Thanks, Joanne. Where are, you, where are you coming in from? So
4: I am actually from Puerto Rico, but I'm not far from you. I am in Round Rock. Oh,
1: excellent. So, right Puerto on. We're neighbors.
4: So my question is related to mental health. I think in this group we have a lot of people doing mental health work. I am a psychiatrist. We have a few therapists and coaches, and I wanted to get kind of pick your brain in what from your audience and what you're seeing could be like good help in terms of mental health awareness and prevention. And I am, I'm also a coach and I'm trying to have like this kind of mixing mental health help with personal development and coaching, but wanted to hear because my audience is cute because I'm a psychiatrist, so kind of what you're seeing and what you think would be good for us also in serving back to the community, what would be a good approach?
0: Oh, I like that. I previously was very much a long-term planning person. And in the chaos of this last year, for all the reasons, and then also the specific reasons of relationship transition, the idea of long-term planning just felt overwhelming. And so I started doing something where... I'm now looking six months or so in advance and asking a very simple question, which is what do I need in this season against this dimension of health? Right. Like So for me, health, it's relational health, spiritual health, emotional health, mental health and physical health. Right? Like I, I end up trying to go physical last because most people only think of health from a physical lens. And I just think it's, man, it's a holistic, all of these things kind of approach. And so, so I've asked this question, what do I need in this season? to take steps every day to become closer to the version of who I'd hope to become. How do I actualize this honoring the intention of my creator? How do I bring the most light? How do I show up as the dad I'd hope to be? How do I stay connected to my personal values? How? And when I end up diving into answering the question against each of those dimensions, that's where I get to create a little bit of how my daily routine will show up, how my short-term goals might manifest so that I can actually every day take that single step closer to who I'd hope to become. So I would actually start with, you know, what do you believe your community needs in this season? Or asking them, what do you need in this season, right? Because even just the invitation for them to answer the question, Again, is a bit of an empathy bridge that you're now trying to extend to understand what it might be like to walk in or live in their shoes. And so I, I can just tell you, like when I when I wrote this down uh, most recently, what do I need in my mental health? The, the first thing I need is professional freaking help. I am meeting every single week, most times more than once a week with my dude, David, because the objectivity of his ability to normalize my struggle, to ask me questions about how I might reframe the experience of my experience has been so, so important. I need, what else in my mental health? I need purpose and meaning from the work that I do. When I feel like the work that I'm doing isn't about impact, I feel empty. And so every single thing that I'm doing inside of my professional pursuit has to tie back to impact and meaning and purpose in some way. And if I'm not, I have to become comfortable walking away from or redefining the scope of that work so that I can actually get back to a place that feeds what I need mentally. And then the third thing that I wrote most recently uh, is grace. Right, like what do I need in my mental health right now? I need a huge serving of grace because I like every single person here, I'm on a non-linear journey. It like there could be three really great days in a row, and then I have a really, really hard day. And when I have a hard day, the only thing that really keeps me from getting back to good fast is how hard I am on myself and how much I feel shame or you know whatever for processing emotions, which is a totally normal and human kind of thing. And so, man, like the journey is going to be something that just inherently brings headwinds and waves and your ability to be graceful with yourself and hold yourself to the standard of doing the best that you possibly can and knowing that, man, you're gonna have hard days. That's like, you know, a huge part of what I need. When I think about like, what do I need in my relational health? I think this maybe applies to to what I need mentally, to be honest. I need connection because the world feels very disconnected being that we have been living inside of this pandemic world for now more than a year's worth of time. And so fighting to find ways to connect with people that are meaningful and important to me that I love or crave love from, such a wildly important kind of thing. I obviously need to lean into my family, the kind of things that we're doing to intentionally create bonds with me and these four kids are unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life, in part because I know they also are going through transition, but also the need for connection and the way that I feel mentally is so an out, such an output of the kind of intentional, non-technology, quality time that I'm spending with these kids. And the third thing that I need, and I would argue you could start here with your attempt to deliver value for the people in your community, I need boundaries from anyone who is trying to steal my fight for joy. It is so hard as a people pleaser, as someone who has like attempted over time to absolutely 100%, be what people need and show up for people when they've asked. And also, there are some mean people out there. There are some people that have divergent values and different motives. And if they are coming into my world and disrupting my pursuit for joy, then I have a responsibility to create a boundary that will keep them out. So, my calendar, auditing regularly my social feed, text exchanges, like all of them are exclusively set aside for positivity. And if you decide to come into my space and be anything but positive, goodbye. Just can't, not gonna do it. And the the beautiful thing about going through a hard season, uh, I felt permission to be ruthless about boundaries when life got hard and I hope to uh, respectfully and and decently maintain this habit of being just ruthless about boundaries going forward because um, I can't become who I was placed on this planet to be if I am not really, really conscientious of who I'm letting inside my space and how they're living inside of my space affects the way I think about myself, my confidence, my motivation, my drive to continue to deliver good stuff to this planet. So boundaries for sure is a big thing too. But anyway, the the long and short of it is what do I need in this season has been a life-changing kind of thing over the last year of my life. And I would argue as you're trying to understand how to best serve your community, what do you need in this season I think is a good place to start and just seeing if there aren't two or three things in each of the dimensions of health really zeroing in on the stuff around mental health and encouraging people to not like if there's anything that I you know have come to appreciate man there is nothing selfish in indulging in and prioritizing mental health it is a prerequisite to living the kind of life that I'd hope to live and the attention to self-care and the priority that I have to create in filling my cup so that I actually have something to pour into others Man, is just like, it's everything. It is everything. I think there's a lot of times that whether it's the stigma around mental health or the insane standards that exist around gender roles or whatever else that maybe um, looks down upon people who need help or that would set aside time for help that's that's nuts. I, like, sorry. It's just like, it's the craziest thing to me. So um, encouraging people to make it a priority, but the, also they're answering that question of what they need so that they're actually pouring things in that are satisfying specific needs that they can identify in the next three, six months will likely reveal themselves as things they have to be prepared for. Yeah.
4: Thank you so much. This is so helpful. And I struggle with exactly what you're saying of because there's so much stigma, right? Like I don't want people to say like, oh, I'm not going to go talk to the Frank, right? And that's part of my mission is like trying to provide this help before you have to get to that point where then you actually do need to see a psychiatrist because there's so much to do in this space, right? And kind of dealing with that stigma. And and so, yeah, thank you so much for what you do in knocking down that stigma as well. And Talking so openly about
0: it because it does help. Oh, jo- hey, Joanne. Here, I'll tell you this too. Anytime I run into anything that is uh, like stigma or taboo, I try to force myself to immediately just talk about it, even though it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because, uh, like Kristen, in having this very candid conversation about, hey, I want to figure out how to not have these drinks become a bad thing in my life, right? When you bring something that you experience, some insecurity about some shame around into the light. Shame cannot live in the light. It it needs the darkness to thrive. And the second that I am able to take something that maybe historically would have been shame producing or would have historically been a bit of taboo or would have made me worry about what other people were thinking and bring it on into the light, I am now taking ownership. I have power in bringing that uh, up front and just having a conversation about it. What's interesting too, the more that I've done it, the more that I am able to connect with other people because the thing that you struggle with is the thing that every single person who's here today and anyone who ever will listen struggles with, right? Like we are all, as a part of our human condition, people who struggle with the same stuff and when you're able to raise your hand and represent that this is a thing that you're working through, you will find solidarity in other people who also are experiencing that same thing. So good news, you get to feel less alone. But then two, you're often also able to find someone who is a little further along their journey, the same journey that you're on, that maybe can afford you a tip or trick or hack that worked for them. And now you get a, you get the benefit of being able to accelerate your own journey because of your willingness to raise your hand and suggest that, hey, this is a thing I'm trying to work through. So, man, it, it's it's a game changer to feel less alone. It's a game changer to connect, but it also may, in fact, just get you the thing that you need in terms of a tool to help you in a way that you would never have had if you didn't feel comfortable to raise your
1: hand.
4: Yeah. No, thank you. As Again, in all of us who are here in the mental health field and as a psychiatrist, we need to speak up and knock down that stigma. But yeah, no, I, my heart is bigger right now. Thank you so much for being here with Oh, me. that's
0: awesome.
1: Next up, we have Julie Collins. And I just want to say, there's like five or seven of y'all in here with a published book. And I think, Dave, that a lot of the inspiration came from you guys at the Hollis Coast. So wow! Just, yeah, I think it's really cool how this community has just been so empowered by you. So. Wow,
0: well, that's so awesome. Thank you. What a kind so, thing to say.
5: All right, Julie, fire away with your question. So, Dave, thank you so much. And it's a I, I don't want to be emotional, but today is actually the anniversary of one year ago being laid off. And as I got laid off last year, I was getting ready to go see you in Boston oh. and it got canceled. It was going to be our anniversary with my husband. And the, when I first got your book, I did not, I read the first chapter and the one chapter that you read about, you talked about, you know, your identity being tied into your title. It really made me explore how right before I got laid off doing that. So I do have to thank you for that, because having done that thought work really prepared me for, you know, what was to come. And in the last year, not only have I published a book, but have I launched myself into this brand new adventure. You know, the coaching that you did for many of us here has definitely enabled me and many of us to uh, sort of uh, thrive, throughout a global pandemic. My question to you, and a lot of what I was going to ask, you've answered already, Uh, and and I do appreciate that because I think that um, all of us have struggled similarly with minding our thoughts, trying to experience and really sit into that messy middle. And for you, you've talked about how this has been the best year, but also the worst year for you. What are you doing going forward to level up? And, and I would love to know, how would you like to be remembered if everything ended for everyone today? What would you like us to remember you as? And I, I thank you again. And if you want to come on my podcast, I would love to have you.
0: <laughs> oh, Julie, you're good. You're good people. I like this. Well, it's interesting, I think a lot about legacy. What's interesting is, you know, having had a 25 or so year career in entertainment and thinking that uh, the work that, man, I'm so, so proud of, but not a part of anymore at The Hollis Company was something that would be a part of my life for a long, long time to come. Sitting on the cusp then of figuring out what next was gonna be like, I'll admit, super scary, right? Like it was this blank piece of paper that I've described. It was equal parts exhilarating and terrifying. And the idea of legacy against that backdrop then becomes something that for each of us is ours to write, right? That hopefully is the part that's exhilarating. Because when I think about how I might be toasted at a birthday party 20 years from now, or how the video at my memorial service might play, I am solely, exclusively responsible for the things that people might say inside of a toast or the images or videos that might be compiled inside of that memorial service. And that is the thing that gets me up. Like I'm not the most motivated person every single day, even though maybe it seems like it on fake social media, but I have to stay connected to my authorship of this rest of my life. And I just have 100% certainty that I will be remembered at the end of my life for the work that has not yet happened in my life. That though I had this career, though I've had these experiences, though I've yep had this amazing relationship that's now transitioning, The things that people will say about me, they have not yet even started to happen because I'm only just now really becoming, I believe, the person that I was actually placed on this planet to be. I think every single thing that I've gone through, whether it's professional pursuits, relationship stuff, the way that I've grown and had to, because of struggling, learn from a bunch of mistakes, all those things find me now where I'm at as this person who gets to take all those experiences and the the knowledge and the, you know, any other thing that came from all of what I've been through to apply to what comes next. So when I think about what am I going to go do next, I tend to come back to a little bit of a framework that starts with what do you, like, what do you stand for? What are my values? That's the first set of guardrails. And then who do I want to be? And so like once you identify what you stand for, the like, more narrow then set of guardrails ends up being, how would you hope to have a reputation? What would your personal brand be? What would you hope that people might say at that toast or remember you at that memorial service? And so when I, when I think about like, okay, how do I use these things that I have value for, the unique gifts that were put on me by our creator and bring them to the world, I'm going to focus on personal development because it's just been such a huge part of my life and it's a big part of why I feel so good about how I am and who I am today. I am going to spend some time inside of business, entrepreneurship, leadership. I've had the benefit of working with teams and, and, and I like the space. I like the idea of being able to try and afford tools to other people who might find themselves trying to lead teams or grow a business. I'm gonna work inside of health and fitness, a thing that I would not have said a handful of years back, but with as many miles as I've run in the last couple years and as much as I have seen this correlation between how when I move I feel a different way, I'm gonna just keep kind of leaning in that space and then I'm gonna really spend time inside of parenting. Uh, I have a tea time with Noah Booker, excited about that. I'm working on a confidence mindset book for 8 to 12-year-old boys that feels like it's a need in the market, uh, generally speaking. Uh, like Basically, is there a way that I might create tools that if they were to be deployed to smaller humans, I might make the tools that I've or anyone has created for adults irrelevant for the people who get to uh, use those things when they're young before the world tries to teach it uh, lies to these small people? Could you maybe uh, just imbue some truths, capital T truths to them in a way that makes them believe in themselves and have confidence for themselves? So I'm going to work inside of that space. And, and so when I think about like legacy, I hope that the legacy I end up having is that I changed the world, that I created tools that helped people have a better life and that I did it not because of wanting to build wealth or uh, an empire that I did it because of a responsibility that comes for having been given the gifts to do to do so right like i think again every every single one of us has been created for a very very specific reason and that honoring the intention of our creator and the deliberate design that we were each put on this planet for that is going to be my legacy and i'm going to try and get up every single day to Um, I I put the post up yesterday of this mantra that sits above our dining room table, to whom much is given, much is expected. I have been given so much, and I think that there is a responsibility that comes in having been given as much as I've been given. And I hope that when I am done and gone from this place that people will say, man, he was given a lot and he gave every single ounce of what he was given back to the world because... What the heck am I here for? I'm here to try and do that more than anything else.
5: Thank you so much. That is so incredible. I am so aligned with everything that you said, and it makes me feel like I am on the right path. And I thank you again for everything that you've given, because it really, for most of us that are in a path of self-discovery and reinventing ourselves in this year, you have been uh, sort of our leader in this journey. So thank you so much again. And come to Casa de confidence because I'm all about confidence. Awesome. Uh,
0: Thank you, Julie. I can tell you're in the right spot. So keep on going. That's amazing.
5: Thank you. Well, the next person up was
1: Margaret Wilson. Do you want to go, Margaret?
0: Oh, Margaret, no pressure, Margaret. Here we go.
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, You kind of answered the question already, but I think there is a particular question that I have when it comes to sitting with your feelings and silencing that voice. So for example, I'm an overthinker and a recovering overthinker. So I'm going to be careful with the verbiage that I use. But first thing in the morning before I'm even up, my mind starts going 100 miles an hour. And it could be because of situations or problems or something like that. What do you do? Like I have some practices, but if you have that same issue, maybe at night, some of my clients have it before they go to bed. Is there a practice that you have that helps you not suppress those thoughts and those feelings, but allow them to come up so you can work through them. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. I I have a chapter in my next book called Seeking Stillness (laughs) because stillness has become such an important ingredient in being able to keep moving through the chaos of all the things Mm -hmm. that are happening. I know that you're all familiar with this, but like The world is engineered around noise. There are the incessant marketing messages from every company on the planet trying to convince you that you do not yet have enough of their stuff. There is this comparison game that is happening on social media every single day that is against the highlight reel of their life, having you worry that you are somehow not measuring up. The news is playing a game where it's trying to convince you that if uh, you can just be scared enough, you will come back. That's their business model, fear in uh, hoping that maybe if they can keep you scared enough, you can just keep watching. And if you allow yourself to become numb to or unconscious to the just incessant noise that exists, there is an impossibility for you to stay connected to your mission, your purpose, your calling, the thing that is on your heart. And so I there's I guess there's like two things that I've done. One, I actually took this three-day pause from the world back at the end of 2019. It was maybe the most important three days I could have spent in the entire year, especially as a preparation for what I was declaring was going to be my best year ever in 2020. I did not realize I wouldn't have a say in the conditions through which my best year would show up, but the dreaming and the visualization and the who I'd hope to be and how if I want to be that kind of person, then I need to do these kinds of things, epiphanies. They happen on a rock in Tucson, Arizona for three days where I deleted all of my social media apps and actually had someone in the office change the passwords because I know myself well enough, I had to be separate from the noise that traditionally runs my life. And I came back, uh, I wrote in this little green notebook, I got my little ship drawn on the front I wrote 90 pages in a journal. I've never journaled in my entire life. And what happened in journaling was that like 20 minutes or so into each of my journaling sessions, the unprompted, no agenda journaling had that first 20 minutes conscious thoughts. It was things I was worried about, things on my to-do list, whatever. But like 20 minutes in, a switch flipped and it became a pouring out of unconscious things that were living inside of me that I was not even aware of. And now that my hand just kept riding, I was able to see the things that were really, really there. And these are things that I would not have seen were it not for having intentionally created the space to allow them to emerge. So um, finding a way to break away. Guess what? Like Getting three days in the desert is like a, an impossibility, especially in a pandemic. I'm not suggesting that you need three days, but you've got to try and be really intentional in forcing space for peace so that you can receive the benefits of what comes in that stillness, that in muting the noise or stopping the noise for a second gets you back to neutral. So uh, I have created a routine in my morning and in my evening on a thing I've called my patio of peace that is very much intentionally a space where technology doesn't exist, where my children don't exist, where I can be in conversation with God, where I can be immersed in nature, where I can, in listening to music, allow myself to feel and invite a conversation with what it is that I'm feeling and why those feelings believe themselves to be present in my life. And every single time it is a, oh, everything's gonna be just fine. This is a safe, peaceful space. And once I get done with that morning and evening routine, at the end of my morning moments of peace, that's when I go and actually open my calendar and plan my day. And so I don't plan my day until I've gotten to neutral. Because if I let the noise sit super present and I try and do any kind of planning, I am actually planning against the distraction of the shiny object that is making the most noise and not what is most connected to what I'd like to try and actually achieve in the day. In the book, I talk about that difference between a thermometer or a thermostat. I I truly, truly believe that when we allow noise to be ever present in our life, we act more like a thermometer instead of a thermostat. And it's only in that space that you create where noise becomes obsolete, or at least quieted enough that you can actually think clearly, that you can create the intention for the kind of day, the kind of life, the kind of person that you'd hope to be, answer those questions of what you need in this season, because you're now not being distracted by every other person's agenda or motives or, you know, against what I was talking about earlier, the, the marketing messages or the fear mongering or the comparison game that might happen from the companies, the social media you know, phenomenon or, or from the news. And so you've got to fight to create that peaceful space. It's been a massive, massive gift, especially when things start to feel like they are overwhelming. And if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you can track when the last time was that you were able to sit for 15 minutes in complete silence, in conversation with your version of a higher power whatever it might be. If you haven't had it recently, I will guess that your overwhelm level is just going to be higher than someone who's fought for a little time with meditation or yoga or prayer or nature or walking outside or whatever it might be. So you got to fight for that for sure.
2: Love it. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Margaret.
1: All right. Thank you, Dave, so much for coming. We are so excited and happy. All of us, some of us are a little emotional because we all remember the times of being in the conferences with you guys. And so we just thank you so much, Dave. How can we reach you, Dave? Is there anything? You've got some coaching stuff going on. You're doing Growth Day with Brendan how else can we reach out to you just instagram social's
0: great i mean yeah if if you're jonesing for coaching i'll tell you what the the value i think that is being created inside of this growth day thing is just through the roof um they just now introduced a monthly option if uh if the yearly thing was uh, a a bridge too uh long to cross but for what ends up being 49 a month or 2.99 for the year You get access to me coaching once a month and each of 11 other coaches coaching once a month. An amazing community. So check out growthday.com forward slash Hollis. Beyond that, you know, I'm going to let people know when uh, a book launch team comes to be. I know you're my kind of people, so I'll let you all know when... uh, Built through courage ends up being the thing that uh, needs a launch team, but that's uh, that's coming. I think we're shooting for late October, early November. But you know, just keep showing up on the old Graham. Yeah. Keep showing up in Facebook. I'm uh, keeping myself busy trying to, like I say, bring as much goodness out to this world as possible. And seeing y'all has been great, but also getting to connect with everybody and comments and dms means a ton too so i appreciate y'all so so much
1: we are always here to support you dave let us know what else we can do for you please come back and hang out with us and have yourself a wonderful day awesome
0: guys i love you all appreciate y'all being thanks, here thanks for thanks all the support dave. now and in the in the past uh everyone have a fantastic rest of your day and thanks for hanging out with me for lunchtime thank you talk to you soon thanks Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.